Thank you for having us. And thank you to Tommy McCarthy and MPSC for arranging a fantastic panel that we have. For the next hour, we're going to delve into sound for animation, talking about its unique challenges, the workflow, and the creative process. So first, let me introduce our panelists, even though I know many of you know them already. Um, seated next to me is Paul Audison, who is a supervising sound editor, designer, and re-recording mixer. He's a three-time Oscar winner for Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, and his animated credits include Boss Baby and Penguins of Madagascar. And seated next to him is Eric Adal, who is a two-time Oscar nominee for Argo and Transformers Dark of the Moon. He is a supervising sound editor and designer on animated movies, including the Kung Fu Panda films, uh, Shrek Forever After, and an upcoming Lego film. And uh, seated next to him is Michael Semanik, who won Oscars for Lord of the Rings and King Kong. Um, he's a re-recording mixer on many animated movies, including WALL-E, Incredibles 2, and Hotel Transylvania 3, most recently. Welcome. Uh, Jeff Rubey is next to him, supervising sound editor and designer. He's worked on all three of the Hotel Transylvania films, The Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs films, and is working on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, right now. And hopefully he'll give us a little bit of insight into that one too during the session. And we have Eileen Horta, sound supervisor. Uh, she's a two-time Emmy winner for Hill Street Blues. And her animated credits, many of them are include uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy, Tom and Jerry, and Garfield and Friends. So please join me in welcoming our panelists. So, uh, so for starters, uh, the, the animated process is obviously different from live action, and uh, the schedule is different. So would one of you, maybe Eric, you'd like to start, uh, when do you get involved? Um, well, let's see. It really depends on the movie. But um, oftentimes, animated features take a lot longer to put together than live action films. Um, that might be changing now with computer technology exponentially getting faster and faster. Like, Lego's going <laughs> to be very quick coming together um, compared to, say, Kung Fu Panda. Um, but usually, you know, with the Panda films, we got started before animation got started. So we were working with storyboards three years before the movie was coming out. And uh, I have a movie that can't tell you what it is, but it comes out next year um, that's animated. And uh, one of the main characters is um, a creature. So obviously that sound design for their voice um, needs to happen before any animation can happen. So in that case, we got started, I think it'll be four years before the release of the film. Jeff, do you want to jump in as well? Um, yeah, the, I would agree that the schedules are very much longer than, the, uh, than a typical live action film. Um, what I found recently, though, and, and, and Eric and I were just discussing this, the technological advancements in the speed at which they can go from a little cocktail napkin sketch of an idea to animation to full color can be frighteningly quick now. So the, there's one pace that we kind of got used to, which was, you know, we'd see boards and then we'd see some animation and... You know, we and we'd fill the sound in, and and as the picture filled in, uh, we tended um, with my crew, we would 
always focus on what picture looked the most finished or what sequence or scene. So we would move from sequence to sequence, reel to reel, looking for what's most done, you know, and maybe we'd do some Foley for a day or two in one area and then we'd back off and then we'd revisit that and you, you bounce around and now it's just, it can come as a flood. So um, a little bit more like live action all of a sudden, so... Now, for, for animated movies, because the, the animation process is expensive, uh, you'll also see uh, the movie made first with storyboards. And if you talk to a picture editor who does animation, they'll tell you that it's almost the reverse of live action and that you're editing and then shooting in a way. Um, so for the sound, um, how, how does that affect your creative process? Um, at what points do you then have to make creative decisions um, with music or dialogue or... Paul, do you want to oh, jump? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Thank you. Uh, well, like you said, it, it, it's almost like you have a, a complete storyboard movie. It's like you're watching, you know, uh, turning pages on a, in a, in a, in a magazine. And the big driving factor at that point is just to get a story together with dialogue. Because uh, I remember the first animated movie I worked on, I said, hey, do you have a script I can read? I said, well, there is, actually isn't a script because it's just an ever-evolving the whole time. Uh, so, so the sound effects become really secondary, but just like Eric said, I, I started up three years before these movies get, get re released, and we maybe just help out with specific story points where you know, we, we need the sound effects to, to do something. So it's not a super creative process at that point, but just having a storytelling. And then as animation evolves, we become more creative how we create effects. And like Eric said, there's some elements in this movie that's dependent on him, him doing a great sound design, they're going to now animate and build a story around. So we will get uh, those calls say we really need this because this creature has to work and we're going to animate this over the next couple of years and we don't want to commit ourselves to something that is not going to work. And, um, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the dialogue side, I know I was Boss Baby last year and we had a boy that was 10 years old when the movie started. He went through puberty by the time we ended the movie. So, and of course, whenever evolving stories became a huge issue because his voice did not sound like the person that started the movie anymore. So, that, you know, there's different challenges in the, in the movie, but, yeah. And um, do one of you want to take us through the, the workflow, or is it different on everyone? Um, just one thing, just quickly to add to what Paul was saying, and this is a sound-savvy crowd, so many of you might already know this, um, but for those who don't, um, in talking about how the process is often flipped. It's kind of reversed in animation where um, the dialogue is recorded first before any animation is, uh, is done, obviously, because uh, the animators have to work to that dialogue. And um, so what winds up usually happening is the picture crew will often be using, or the directors will be using their own voices to kind of temp in for characters as they put the story together with storyboards. And as the film kind of starts to come together and solidify story-wise, then they'll bring in the famous voice talent, you know? So um, that's, uh, and that process can take, you know, sometimes years. <laughs> um, and, uh, so in, in a way, that's kind of the flip of what live action normally is in terms of workflow. Do you guys have anything to add to that? Yeah, it's, um, it, and it can be very interesting, like uh, with Gendy uh, Tartakovsky, who directed the hotel movies, he would, he was such a good sketch artist, and a lot of times he would board things for himself. And the storyboard artist can really affect 
um, they have a huge effect and they'll hire certain people to do a sequence and they kind of design it. So it's, it's, they make decisions or they have little creative ideas. And so maybe they have an idea of somebody burst through a door and into the room and then something falls and they just make a little arrow. And then the next shot is the thing laying on the ground. And then maybe we make a little sound for them. Oh, we need a funny candlestick clank, you know, and then that goes in and then you don't hear from them for months. And the next thing you know, that's there. They change everything, but the, the one thing they hung on to was the little candlestick, you know. And so it's, the, it's, it is very much a reverse process of constantly things pushing in one direction towards the final image instead of photography that then, you know, we put sound to, which would be for the live action side. And Eileen, how does this impact your decision making and your creative process? Well... In my experience, I've always come on with the voice records and have been super and supervised the voice records and do the normal pausing and do the track reading so that the animators can animate the mouths and you go with the storyboards and um, it it get, definitely gives you the time to be very creative and you can try a lot of different things. And like Jeff was saying, you know, you just have these storyboards and you know, you, you make the sound to go with an action that's not there, but you work with the voice and, and the character design and with the animator and the director and it's, you know, you, you get to play a lot. You get to have a lot of fun. And you get to try a lot of different things. So animation's off. I had a thing that I actually just thought of that. Because with, with the sound design for these movies, that we can, if we come up with a really cool sound, they will just change maybe the story or visually what they had thought because they can do. We're not married to a practical right. you know, uh, effect of some kind. So sound-wise, I think we can become much more important early on with storytelling. We don't, we don't follow picture necessarily. We can make picture follow us uh, a lot of times. But... When we say we work on, the, we start three years prior to release. We're not on. For, at least I'm not on for three years. Right. It's it's on and off. So it might be I'm on for two months for a screening that they need to have for the studio, and then I don't see them for three four months. Maybe I go on to another project, and then I'm on for another two or three months, and it doesn't become a real schedule pretty much until we get into you know a month before pre-dubbing. I think and then I have my full-on crew, which means which makes it a little bit harder sometimes because I can't have the same people on the whole time because they need to have other projects and you want to create a, a, a continuity uh, with the sounds in the, in the movie. But a side note. Right. I mean, the, you go from storyboards to pencil tests and you see the what your contribution to the storyboard, how it moved into the pencil test and then into the final animation. So you have a a huge impact as a sound designer and sound supervisor in the process for animation. Yeah, one one example of, of that, which is kind of one of my favorite scenes of any animated films I've done, um, was uh, the chopstick fight from the first Kung Fu Panda film. And, <laughs> and that was, I mean, that was such a fun film on many different levels, but, um, you know, at first it was kind of intimidating because uh, I hadn't done a lot of animation um, in feature films before then. And the first spotting session with the directors was 
absurd. I just couldn't believe how every single frame, like literally frame by frame by frame, we got in one two-hour session, we got through maybe 30 seconds of, <laughs> of the movie. And I was like, oh my gosh, how, what's gonna, how's this going to go? But in a way, though, um, that allows you to be really, really detailed. And as you're starting to sort of sketch out scenes, um, you can, you're not tethered to the picture, as Paul was mentioning, in the same way you might be with live action. So you can just, you know make these rhythms and make almost a very um, musical track with sound design. And for that chopstick fight, um, Hans Zimmer and me and my partner Ethan Vanderein and I all set a tempo for that scene and basically kind of worked to a click track. And we were doing the percussion with chopsticks and whooshes being, you know, the fourths. And oh, by the way, on that film, we recorded hundreds of whooshes. And um, one, of, one of the sessions was on uh, the Hawks stage at 20th Century Fox. And uh, we were using the stage so that we could have enough room to swing different things around on string. And one of the really cool sounds was this jagged piece of metal attached to the string and we're whipping it around and had mics all around it. And at one point the string broke and this <laughs> jagged piece of metal went flying towards the $50,000 silver screen and just missed it by two inches and hit the matting on the bottom. And it was one of those, okay, we're not, not gonna tell anyone about this. Um, but anyway, so we can take all of those pieces and really create this kind of a, you know, um, uh, intricate kind of uh, rhythmic sound design musical track and then, you know, Hans and his team could work with that and we can evolve this kind of syncopation between music and sound design and then just hand it over to animation and be like, okay, go to town. <laughs> and it's, um, to me, and that's often the reverse of how the process normally goes, but um, for me, it makes some of the most magical moments in, in animation. Well, one of the topics that I did want to talk about is how you work with the composer and the music, so maybe this is a good place to do that. Um, Michael or Paul, maybe, do you want to talk about how? Sure. Uh, well, I, I worked in a fair amount of movies where we don't have a lot of music, so, and then when I started doing animated movies, it is, kind of wall-to-wall, -wall. so it's a bit of thinking of, at least the movies I've worked on, um, a little bit of thinking of what I can and cannot use. You, you, I can't just fill up the whole palette with your sound design, so it need to be more specific towards maybe with the music. And I think a lot of, uh, as a whole, maybe it plays more a little secondary to a, a, a music, except for these bigger events, or like you talk about that, you know, you chopstick sequence was really all fun about uh, the, the sound design of that. Uh, but uh, I can say with the with the with, with, with music itself, the, the composer doesn't come on until much later in the process. But they try to tempt it. I think with the composer that's going to write the music for the for the, the movie itself. But I think the sound design they need to fit in with the palette of what the music is going to be. And it's usually it's a lighthearted, fun music. Unless we get this bigger, heavier, uh, you know, sound uh, or you know, dark darker sequences, perhaps. Um, there are quite a few seats if any of you standing on the wall want to step in. Just to kind of uh, dovetail onto Paul, um, a lot of my experience with animation has been television, either a weekly series um, or 
animated specials. And in my background, like when I first started and I was doing work for Hanna-Barbera, they had a composer who did all of their animated shows. His name was Hoyt Curtin. And you could go to Hoyt and say you needed some, you know, special kind of boings or dongs or stuff. And he would, with his orchestra, do a variety of things that would then become a part of the sound library. So you had an opportunity to always to work with these guys because these guys did all of the shows. And you'd get um, a for the first few episodes of a new series, they would score the the show from beginning to end. And then for the rest of the season, you would just go to them and say, well, I need, you know, I need something a little bit more mysterioso, a little bit different kind of a chase thing. And you would reuse these sounds, but you would build, it's always been a collaborative effort between the music side and the sound effects side. Michael, do you want to talk about your relationships with the composers and how you work together? Yeah, I mean, for me, composers, uh, well, with like Pixar, they bring them on pretty early. They start really early in, in demos, and they, they sort of do what the sound department does. They're on for a while, and then they're off, but they're already starting themes mm -hmm. and ideas uh, with the directors on what, you know where the tone of the film is going to go. Uh, I get brought in. Sometimes I'll go down to scoring dates if I'm free to let, start listening. I hear early demos to get real familiar with scenes. And and again, it's a storyboard. One of the perfect examples of like, yeah, the, the people are doing all kinds of sound. And Up was a perfect example of, there's an opening sequence where the older couple, uh, she dies on her, her, her deathbed and they wanted to travel. But it shows their life kind of going and not being able to make that trip. But in the storyboards, we had all sound effects in there, like tree falling, tire blowing out. We had rough music in there, and I remember going down to the scoring date, and they were playing, they were scoring that cue right here at Sony. And I was sitting with the director, and Pete Doctor, he leaned over, he goes, hey, what do you think about playing this scene without anything except music? And I said, I think it's a great idea, because we were watching it with nothing else in the room but orchestra playing. Uh, it was a, 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 and then we got into the mix, and everybody was so used to having the sound effects in there that were part of the storyboard. They've been there for three, four years, and it was really difficult to kind of, you know, we're kind of missing them or not, we're not. And and Pete was really adamant about, you know, the only reason I put those in there is because it was storyboards, and I didn't, I didn't want to have sound in there, but it actually told the story until we got the finished animation. So that was a process of watching when the animation started all coming together. It kind of told the story on its own, and we didn't need to support it. And Michael Giacchino did, made such a beautiful cue there that it was uh, the decision for Pete to like, I just want to play music here and then bring everything back in at the end of the sequence. So that's a sequence where, yeah, a lot of stuff. I get involved with the composers. We start talking about the things with uh, you know themes, and obviously the sound team is like, okay, well, do we need to pitch things to be in this, or do we want to not pitch things? So it's definitely a sound effect that we want to call attention to. So uh, yeah, I get involved pretty pretty early on. I'm usually on another project, so I can't, you know, I get brought in towards, you know, we're gonna start pre-dubbing. And so it's like, okay, we gotta start cleaning everything up. And, cause they've been ha hanging on to, you know, sounds sometimes at picture department for four years. 
And then you get to the mix, and they're like, yeah, we never really cared for that. We just, uh, it just kind of worked. Can, it's not working with the music now. Can we come up with something else? And these guys got to all run off and like, oh, my God, we got to redesign the thing again? Jeez, we've been doing it for four years. So, yeah, it's a, uh, uh, you know. Now I tell, yeah, exactly. Well, so. Nate, you talked about working with Pete Doctor, but um, that, that's a, a, a really important topic is just how, how do you work with the directors? How often do you talk with the directors? What is that collaborative process like? I mean, you guys talk to them a lot more than I do because they're discussing ideas and flushing out, you know, sounds and stuff. Uh, I, occasionally I will. They'll call me up or, or, or hey, I'm, you know, just ask me some questions about can we do this, this schedule they're giving me? Do you think this is enough time? <laughs> That's usually what it is. And uh, Or what do you think of, you know, I'm thinking of this composer or that composer. Have you had any experience? But uh, for the most part, I don't, you know, I talk to them occasionally. It just depends. We'll talk early on about what projects they're working on or, or you know, I got this really great idea and it's going to be, you know, just a musical or just, I just want to do something with no music, you know, what, you know, and, and they'll kind of flush out ideas and just to see my feedback. But otherwise it's not until I start really hearing the score, the demos, or, or if they have a question about a scene, you know, how do we get this transition? I'm, I, I don't seem to get it to work. And then I can talk to either, you know, Eric and Jeff and kind of get involved and go, okay, well, let's see what, the music's doing it. See, maybe, you know, somehow we got to make these transitions work better. So I don't know. Hey, now that, for that, sorry to interrupt, but uh, it's, you're to blame for that. Everything is awesome song, right? <laughs> you I'm not, I didn't everything. write it. I wish I did. No. But yeah, mixing it. Yeah. Everything is. Yeah. Good luck on the next one. <laughs> everything is awesome too. Yep. Um, Actually, yep. There is, uh, talk, you should get into talk about going into the detail on Coco. On a couple of those music cues, because oh. you you were telling me about that. Was, yeah, on Coco, on Coco, the music was really detailed, and uh, Lee Unkrich, the director, was very uh, tuned into it. I had literally hundreds of tracks of everything split out because Lee was really like, like down to the PA that they're singing in the courtyards to like I had to create all that stuff. And uh, it took a lot of time. It, it, yeah, I mean, at least they, they separated everything out. So we had control of a lot of stuff. And, and you know, the direct, Lee, he'll sit right next to me and just like, you know, no, that, that little reverb on that needs to be a little louder. That, you know, it's like really getting detailed. No, we need to find another uh, a vocal line for that because she, she messed up that, you know, it's a little too this. He's very detailed, but I find it fun because once you get it, it's done. He's, he doesn't come back to it. It's done. It's happy moved on but yeah jeff you're right the the uh the detail and the music in that one was uh, one of the hardest things i've ever done and his relationship to that just the tone tones yeah and every little thing yeah it was really uh uh interesting, interesting. I, I loved that track that was a great track. jeff i'd love Thank to you. hear a little bit about um your collaboration with the directors for the upcoming spider-man into the spider-verse because if, if you've seen the trailer uh, it's a really stylized comic book look and I'm curious how you uh, came to what it would sound like. Um, it's a, it's a, that's Chris and Phil. I met them on um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Um, and they were very young and um, full of great ideas. And now they're just full of, even more full of great ideas. So they're, they're crazy. So, um, Eric, you're going to have to deal with them soon. <laughs> getting rested up. Yeah. yeah. Um, they'll wear you out. Uh, they, they were very specific. It was um, because we were working on something out. We were working on Hotel 3 at the time. 
And so, and they never have any time to talk or meet or anything. So we've never spotted that film. We've never had a official meeting per se, except for one time we, we had put together a sequence back in March and played it for them, got some notes and then it's just been temp mixes and quick meetings here and there. So they kind of count on us to just sort of do it. Um, but he gave us very, very specific notes and filled it or thoughts about how to think about the movie. And it was all character related because they're, um, Chris and Phil, are, they're always writing. It's their writers. That's their, that's where they, you know, I think they would think of themselves as writers more than anything. So they are always writing. So they would give, they gave some very specific feelings that they wanted the audience to have when dealing with a particular character. So if it's Miles, um, it's his, the fact that he's wearing Jordan ones and they need to squeak in a particular way or whatever. And luckily my son is really, really, really into sneakers. So getting some Jordan ones to record was very easy. Um, but, um, or Prowler needs to be, have technology He's, you know, he, the way he moves around the city, the way he can sort of jet boot around or whatever, very fascinating, but it needs to feel DIY. doesn't want that to be too high tech. There's another character that's from the 31st century, so that needs to be like, well, we don't know what that sounds like because it's got to sound amazing and it's got to be, you know, it's the classic, uh, it needs to sound like a robot that nobody's ever heard before, you know, and it... Signature sound, please. Yeah, and it needs to be a signature sound, and we need to. It, it can't be. It can't sound like anything else that we've ever heard, and you know. And it turns out it just sounds like you a got robot, that now. You know, yeah, oh. just, just, you know, big clunky feet and servo. Sort of you know, whatever. But it's um, you know, it's all custom and cool. But um, no, it's just you know th those requests. So it's it's. Um, but he he. It's more about feelings uh, with with them. They'll like say how I want to feel. And, and like, we'll, we'll play a scene and, you know, Michael, you'll probably agree is like, he won't necessarily give you a note on, on things that, or you kind of go, well, are we cool with these sound effects or whatever? He's like, oh yeah, I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention. Like, right. like, oh, well that's good then because you weren't noticing that. So that just happened. And then the thing, he's only going to comment on what maybe what was wrong you know, and it might be the music or whatever. And he'll just tell you how you, he wants to feel or how the, he wants the audience to feel. So then that's, to me, that's the best direction because then you, you're looking for a feeling as opposed to telling us what to do. Like, I want this to make a metal clunk that, you know, feels like it's 400 pounds hitting a piece of concrete. Oh, well, okay, I don't know what that, you know. Now that's really specific. Now we're sort of all, this, all of a sudden just immediately locked in where he'll say, I want this to feel like it's from the 31st century. Oh, okay. Well, that's a whole universe of ideas that could come into play. So um, with them, that's what that's like. And, and, and I think Paul had something. Yeah, and also with, uh, I think your question was about how often we see the uh, directors of these three years. And, and I, the DreamWorks movies, I've been on since they're not too far away. Uh, it would be maybe meet every two months or so. I would do a kind of temp version mix of what I have, send over, and then maybe we sit and talk about a section of a reel, or like like Eric says, there's never time for a whole the movie because they they they're so detail oriented. They, they sit and look at hand drawings and, and storyboarding throughout this last few years, so they're very very into with every single bit of it. But we at least I would meet with them every about two months or so during this process, and then we hone in. It would be like what the palette of sounds we should use, like the, the tone of the 
swish it shall, just like you do record these crazy things, just to get that right tone. Like a bass baby wanted to sound like it was all in the 50s, 60s. And there was the, the score as well, so we went to the scoring or, or meters with the composers or Hans Zimmer, it would be the tone of the instruments a little bit from that era and also the sound design that would go along with that. But it was a, an ongoing discussion we have where we hand this off to each other where music would present that age and maybe it were, my sound design would present the time era we're in. Um, ultimately, all of you, uh, your work is about supporting the story. But um, I'm curious, do you find that because you're looking at animated images versus reality, uh, live action, um, do you feel like you have more creative leeway sometimes? Um, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, kind of, the sky's kind of the limit with animation. And you can really kind of step outside the box. And I mean, yeah, okay, here's a funny story. So um, uh, Monsters versus Aliens. Um, Ethan and I decided to give ourselves a sound design challenge and do the entire third act um, with only mouth sound effects. And we weren't able to really achieve that, but, but, but we, we almost did. Uh, basically, the whole end of the movie takes place on a spaceship. So like almost every sound on that spaceship is done with our mouths. Like the, the hover bike, you know, and processed a little bit. Um, all of the pneumatic hatches, all of the computer beeps, all of those were performed by mouth and then processed to... So in live action, that might be a stretch, but sometimes you do that in live action. De definitely your, your imagination is, you know, there's no ceiling. So you get to be as bold and as out of the box as you can be. And you, act, and you have a time to test out the sounds and manipulate them and come up with something that's new and different and fun. I mean, don't, I always tell people at the beginning of, you know, when they first get started in animation, don't be afraid to be bold, be bigger than you think because that one sound is so important. You know, it can be, you know, the joke of the sequence, you know. Michael, you were telling me earlier about uh, fun uh, use of sound for the um, Mr. Incredibles mobile. Oh, yeah, well, working with Brad Bird is always great. See, again, he's very detail-oriented, and he'll sit in the mix right there with you. And for Incredible Bill, uh, it, we had established sounds from the first movie, but he really wanted the uh, ignition to be, uh, harken back to the old Batman TV show. So the ignition is actually taken right from the, that sound effects library of the, the blasting off. And it transfers into Brad's Tesla, which was one of the early models, the Roadsters, that uh, Ren had recorded and, and Randy had recorded. And then it goes into the original sounds that were done. But uh, that was one that, you know, Brad loves to harken back to his childhood. Like Johnny Quest is in the, in the movie. And he loves those kind of old sound effects from time to time. And, and he'll ask you to go and reach for those. And uh, that was one where incredibly, he was like, give me the Batman <laughs> Ignite. I need that. <laughs> you know, so we would do that. It's a total ratty recording, but it kind of, it works for that ignition of the Incredible. So, yeah, those are the fun things you get to do. And, 
you know, if we had known that before we had gotten into the final mix, that that's what he wanted to do, they wouldn't have designed a whole thing <laughs> that we just had it and pre-dubbed. And it was like, you know, I always wanted to put this in there. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> let's, let's redesign it now. But, uh, and, and some directors really love doing that. I mean, Jeff talked about not meeting with Chris and Phil because their time's limited, but one thing Chris and Phil know, they've worked with Jeff for so long. He knows their quirkiness. He understands where, they're, you know, where they like the sound to come from and, and, and the organicness of it or whatever. He gets their humor, and so they don't even have to think about it. You know, they can, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get it. We'll give you some guidance. Like Phil will just say, I want it to feel like this. And so the interpretation, you have to have that repertoire with them and that's wor working with them for years that you know that you get that repertoire and you get to understand them and uh, and spider-verse is going to be you know it's like a comic book coming to life and 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 really approaching the sound and the music on that's going to be you know I, I i think just like a kid in a candy store i hope it's just like we open up a comic book and it just comes up it just comes off the pages and comes to life and and I know the animation's going to look like that because we're, we're seeing that now. And I'm hoping, you know, as we get into the mixing, we're going to try to complement that with all the sound. So I'm hoping. Isn't that out in like eight weeks? <laughs> uh, somewhere like that. You know, you can good, run that. You, they we, push these things right up until about... You know, we should really get started on that, yeah, I think. Yeah, good <laughs> so, oh, wait, now we were talking about schedules um, for, for you, Michael, for re-recording mixing. Um, are the schedules tighter now, or? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're very yeah, they're, fluid. They're a mess, yeah. I mean, because everybody pushes it to the limit now, and now you realize they can, with the animation coming in late, and like, like these guys said earlier, uh, it used to be a different workflow, but now as computing and technology's gotten faster, they can change the story. We can redo this line. We can go out and get the actor now, because they can reanimate it quick, you know, and it looks great. And so with that comes the 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 uh you know creative juices at three o'clock in the morning from phil lord going i'm gonna redo this line i'm gonna re you know we're in the final mix phil yeah yeah we're gonna redo that okay so you know so with that that at directors knowing oh well i can now change this stuff or i can take that out uh yeah schedules have gotten really tighter and tighter uh you know at, towards the back end you know you end up working six seven days a week because animation's coming you know i mean Every, everybody procrastinates in a kind of a way. They, you know, Lego, they've been working on this story for four years. And then they're done, right? Yeah, totally done. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's like they just, you know, I don't know. They focus on what, you know, directors, they get going. And then as things start to, I think, I don't know the process, but as they get through it and they start to see the animation, they're like, it's not, you know, maybe I should change the story here or do this, and this would look better like that. And so I think it's just a process of, you know, looks good on the page, and then same with shooting live action. So, oh, it reads great on the page, and then you put it up, and it's like, that scene didn't turn out as well, but this other scene turned out way better for some reason. And it's just a process, I think, in animation that's happening as well, that it has happened in live action, is they, what's written on the page doesn't always come out great, and sometimes it comes out even better, but I think they're finding that out in animation. As we animate it, it's like, uh, I kind of wanted it to do this. I wanted the character to go to the screen left instead of screen right would have been better. Or, you know, anything like that. And guess what? They can do it. <laughs> so that's what happens, I think, in the process. And the schedules just kind of get, yeah, crunched. 
And, and what happens too then is that you're going to have to run a lot of stages at the end, you know. Yeah, so you exactly. have your final stage, and then you've got your mix update stage, and maybe a stage for doing foreigns and spinning that out to the different territories. And so. Now, now Paul, you're, you're editing and mixing, so how, how does the schedule affect yeah. you? Yeah, well, I was going to add on to that also what Michael was saying that. Uh, you know, when we work on, on these movies, you get into the last, and it is easier to change things. Like, I, I've, I've done sequences where there was a chases and they were on a scooter. And at some point, someone had the idea they should be on a bicycle instead. So then, you know, they can do that fairly quickly. Everything else kind of stays the same, but now it's a bicycle. But sound-wise, what I've done is just you're starting from, you know, scratch again. Uh, and I think it, when in a live-action movie, even with a lot of visual effects, sometimes you tie it into a reaction of a person. There's something on the screen that they're married to and love, and they will just kind of suck up, suck it up and, and stick with it. But animation, you can change whatever it is that, that you want along the way, and, and, and they will. Uh, I remember the first movie I worked on was uh, Jimmy Neutron, and uh, done a bunch of live action before, and they've changed the cut of the movie, and we're a year or two into it. And I said, you know, I would like, you know, a tradition we get a change list. And I said, well, that can really help you. And I said, well, I, I'm going to need a change list. So I, I get the change list, and it was true what they told me. It didn't help me because, you know, every shot that might be an edit in the shot, maybe it's five frames shorter, but everything within the shot had changed. And there's really no roadmaps. You just look at it, and it's like, well, it's kind of the same, but everything is different. And, and, and they will kind of do that until they start lighting things in automation. It's like when it's okay, this is lit. You're like, thank God that section is locked and, and done with. But until it's lit, anything can change. And, and it will. There's numerous things that probably all of us have redone. It's like, well, I loved what we had. And then next day, I'll do something different. And start over again. So when is it ultimately pencils down? When you see it in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> Three days before the release, I heard. And yeah, there's, it's later and later as it, yeah. every, every year that goes by. Yeah, the day before. The day before it's in the theater. Yeah, no, I've, I've print mastered things that say, you know, there's going to be something here. And we kind of put something in there. And, you know, and then animation, they will make it match my audio sync, what it is. I mean, I, I see what it is before, but it's no, not a locked version of that motion. But they will kind of make it to the sound effect I put in. But it's getting crazier and crazier. Uh, but uh, still, animation as a whole is not as crazy as some the visual effects heavy movies. I mean, because then I can be on for six months and look at my schedule, seven days a week, 12, 14 hours a day is on my schedule, and it gets worse. Animation, usually, at least the ones I've been on, is not that crazy until maybe the last week or so. Now, we've done some DreamWorks movies, both of us, and they're, they're very good with scheduling things. And, yeah, only in the end, and they really apologize. Sorry, we need to say tonight today. It's, no worries. Like last movie, I was here every Saturday, Sunday. I asked my my wife. I mean, sometimes she hasn't seen me like for three months, and uh, on the live action movies. But yeah, actually, the last DreamWorks animation film we did was um, Trolls, and I think in the last month of that dub, we had maybe three picture changes. It was the most civilized like film ever. Um, and yeah, and no weekends, you know, we'd wrap at seven o'clock every day. And, and, and really sorry if you stay an hour late. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah. 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 So, so that's the other side of the spectrum from the Chris and Phil side. <laughs> Something I did want to um, talk about a bit is, um, bef uh, Jeff, you were saying scale is something that you find you really need to focus on in animation. Could you elaborate on that point? 
Um, yeah, well, that it's it's like a pet peeve of mine that I'll I'm always kind of chasing around if because you can really spoil you you maybe something's supposed to be really big and this would be a, it's easier with this example is you know this huge thing comes stomping in it's a a giant cheeseburger that has spider legs you know and they're French fries and so you know and it's supposed to be huge you know it's you know like a house so boom 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 and you know so you're trying to make it feel really, really big, and it's got to have that sense of mass and scale. And then you put a small detail sound because, oh, you see that little lettuce flap, you know, when it's roaring at us, you know, and, you, and oh, we want to make that little tongue flap. And all of a sudden, now it's small. Immediately, you just killed everything you just did trying to make it big. So it's it's tracking that and trying to pay attention to that. Sometimes we want it to feel realistic. And so you're, you're kind of trying to create realism where there isn't, you know, it's a, it's a images that don't exist. So, but you want it to feel real. Like, and we're doing a lot of that with Spider-Man, just trying to make it feel real. Like somebody sits down and they want it to feel like, you know, a guy in a, in some jeans is sitting down on a leather couch and putting his feet up. You know, they want that to feel super, super real or the microwave ding needs to be remind one of the directors of, his microwave in college and, you know, we get a long story about that. But um, <laughs> anyways, um, but it's, it's, yeah, scale can, can, is just so important because it, it's got to be big, but then, oh, now we just did that small sound and you just killed it. So you have to manage that or uh, I guess it's just something I chase around a lot. And I think Michael will, I'm, I can get a little over, I can go overboard with that, but that's, you know, um, and it, but it also factors into the way a lot of these animation directors worked. And I know all of us, you've all encountered this, is like they'll point at something, you know, somewhere along in the mix or whatever, and it's like that thing. And you're like, yeah, in the background, right. We're not doing that. You know, it's like, oh, no, we're doing that. You know, there's some little sound. And you're like, what are we doing? Like that doesn't, there's a guy talking up front, and now we have to hear this little squeaky cart go by or something. But it's because they put that there and it's it means something to them so now we're doing that little detail that you would normally go wait 10 foot rule here you know what why are we covering that no we're covering it and we're going to hear it forever (laughs) (laughs) eileen you're nodding do you know i mean it definitely you have um the the signature sound that you would never know at the the start of the project is going to be your signature sound, like the little squeaky wheels, or you know the the um, the footsteps for somebody. You know, I mean, it's like it, but you are given. I mean, it is the most fun to work on. It is the most fun to work on as animation. I mean, you just get to expand. Uh, I'm your imagination and you just never i mean that's you've got to always think back to you know being a a kid and just it's fun it's just fun and that little sound is going to be you know the thing that you lose a sleep over (laughs) there's always something that you lose sleep over and it's that 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 little sound um, for our audience, how many of you are already working on animated movies or have worked on animated movies? 
Okay, about half. So for the audience members who haven't, um, what's the biggest piece of advice you would give a sound editor or mixer who's working on animation for the first time? I think, as someone said before earlier, I mean, you can be as creative as you possibly can be. It is, it's a ton of fun. I, I love it because, it's like I said, we do challenges, you know, on Jimmy Neutron, there's some army of these chicken guys, and you base everything around chickens. Just it's a challenge to see if you can do it, and I can't do it on an animated movie, but, you know, the weapons, the ship, and everything else, and it's, it's, a, it's a ton of fun, and it's just much more lighthearted, which I appreciate. I've done a lot of darker movies, so it's like, ah, oh, finally, something that was dying and being tortured in. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I really enjoy the animated movies. It's just sensibility and, and humor in this that's you know close to me. I grew up watching animated movies, and you feel like a kid again. And you, you've been in a workshop. I've come up with crazy stuff like on, on uh, Boss Baby, at the scoured earth for old toys from the 50s and 60s. You know, I grew up in the 60s, and there's there's a lot of just the fun stuff. Uh, you know, as, as a whole, I think to be in animated movies. Um. My advice um, is actually going to be really boring, um, <laughs> and this may be obvious, but um, make sure your sound gets into the Avid, like right away, yes. right Amen. away. Don't wait until the end of the process, like the day before your final mix or something. Like, it's the old frog in the boiling water thing. Like, you need to be slowly letting them boil and marinate for months and months and months. So by the time you start mixing, everything's been vetted. They love all your stuff. Your track is the temp track. Um, uh, because if you don't do that, there's going to be a bunch of temp effects in the Avid um, until the very end. And they're going to freak out, no matter how good your work is. So get your stuff in the Avid. If they're not putting it in, find out why. <laughs> Now that what I would do, I would mix down a reel and send them here. This is where I'm at. Yeah. And then I'd rather take 100 notes now than on the stage. Down yes. the road, it's like, you know, yeah. that whole palette's not working for me, and I have a reel of it, and I have a thousand of those events. So, no, it's fantastic advice, yeah. Get it in from early, even if they hate it. And at least you know that. Um, my advice would be don't, do not call them cartoons. <laughs> That's all they are, really. That's, oh, I've done that, and um, uh, and and si similar. Get your stuff, getting your stuff into the Avid, um, getting your giving them sounds, uh, calling them constantly. What, what do you need? Is there any way I can help you? Oh, I could give you a little temp track for that sequence. Anything you can do to get your stuff in it, because next thing you know, they're asking you for their sound. You know, like, oh, no, no, I like our sound in the Avid better. And you're like, that's our stuff, you know, but that's good. Okay, fine. You know, we'll, we'll give you more of what we made for you, sure. Um, and I, I would say the most important thing I learned from, like, working with Chris and Phil, but also other, other people is if you show them a sound effect, which I would never do with animation people because they'll just – go crazy about whatever it is you show them. So if you show them one sound, you'll get 100 notes. If you show them a sequence, you'll get 100 notes. If you give them a reel, you'll get 100 notes. So where do you, how do you want to do that? You know, If you want to spend all day obsessing over a shoe squeak, then only show them the shoe squeak. So I don't like that. <laughs> um, I, everybody has said, you know, the most important things. Um, I, in, 
don't limit yourself. You know, open your horizons to what animation can add to your, you know, your career. I, I, my dad was an animator, so I grew up in the animation world, and uh, everybody, you know, that my parents, um, you know, socialized with were animators, and so. It's kind of second nature for me. I just still, to this day, it's my favorite thing to do. I love to cut the picture and the sound effects, and I love to track music, and, and it, it's, it's really fun. It's just really a fun way to, you know, make a living. Michael? Uh, well, yeah, in animation advice, I, what I see is live action, and the lines are blurring very quickly. And uh, it was Jungle Book uh, live action or was it a CG animated movie? Is Lion King? You know, so I'm looking, I see the lines m blending together between live action and that. So I wouldn't, yeah, my advice is don't limit yourself. Just worry about the story. Make your relationships with your directors and like Jeff and Eric and you all say, get the sounds in front of them early. Yeah. Get them going. When they call you and say, we need a sound for this, it's because they they don't have it. And if they don't have it and you don't give it to them, they're going to pull it right out of Sound Ideas 101. <laughs> or something off the internet, boom. <laughs> and then they fall in love with it. And it's like, yeah, we like our shitty sound we put in there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, advice is to just, uh, you know, never limit yourself, that's all. Push the envelope. And I think directors would appreciate that, you know. And that's, that's about, about it, really. Right. So we wanted to save some time for questions, and Linda has a microphone. Hi, guys. I'm going to um, have two mics, so I'm going to set people up. Please try to just ask questions. Um, keep, keep your hand up so Linda can find you if you have a question. I've been a Foley mixer on a dock with some animated sequences, and since it's a dock, it was kind of trying to find the line of like how realistic do we play some of the sounds um, and how how much do we play like into the animation and I was wondering do you look at like the character designs and things like that to determine how realistic you go or are you constantly like you were saying some sounds need to be super realistic and some sounds need to be uh, cartoony to use the C word um, and, and how do you make those decisions and do you make them early when you start to see storyboards and things like that uh, uh, so um, in general when you're shooting Foley you might be trying to match production like so if you're doing feet you might try to get the sound of that room to match how the production is sounding and you know in animation it's like ADR it's so pristine and clean and dry so typically we shoot the Foley pretty close up and clean without room on it. We can always add that later. Um, often we'll do um, Foley auditions on a lot of sounds. So like character footsteps, like Poe the Panda, what do his feet sound like? We'll do like 10 different auditions. Sometimes we'll either pick them ourselves or play them for the filmmakers and see what do you guys think. Um, Lego, we've been doing that, you know, for all the different characters. Um, so uh, yeah. I did that for, for Scooby-Doo, for Scooby's feet. You audition different, you know, gloves on your hands. And, you know, I went and, you know, you just buy a bunch of stuff or 
have a bunch of stuff with socks on your hands and you just try it out and record it and different surfaces and uh, then you figure out, then that's how you choose your, your sound. I would also say that the, you know, understand your story, just like the live action movies, just get into the heart of the story. And if you work with a supervisor, to ask them also. And just like Eric said, I would tend to ask my Foley mixers to mic and record things closer in animated movie as a wholesale. That might be a scenario a scene has a different meaning to me. I might want to do something differently. Right. But in, in live action, I, I use a lot of room on my stuff when even I want to record it in, in the room. But I think just the communication with the supervisor, let them ask your directors, and, and so they understand the palette of sound that you need to create because you don't want to do it twice unless they're paying you twice. Okay. <laughs> I, I would, we have a next question. Hi, thanks. My name is uh, David DiPietro, and I'm a, a mixer on TV. And we're, you know, we have very, very short schedules. And you're talking about the technological advances of the animation. Have you noticed, or do, are you concerned about? The amount of time you guys are going to have as as their their time shortens. Yeah, absolutely. Always. Uh, yeah, the time. Like I said, the time gets crunched, so we end up. There's only so many hours in a day, but they'll push it that way. You know what I mean? You end up working longer hours, trying to to match a a fin finalized date. But yeah, they'll put it off as long as they can. Yes, we do. I do see the crunchiness of that. You know, hours coming in. Still takes the same amount of hours to mix. Just all of a sudden now, instead of you know ten days, you're you're down to three or something. So it's really yeah, it's really a, a difficult situation. The nice thing about learning, you know, making it to the theater is that your lead time now is starting to shorten up. So instead of having six weeks to get it to the theater and be done, now it's down to three. So you schedules are notoriously just moving right into that. So you still kind of get, you know, and directors want to be detailed and they want the best for their thing, but so you still kind of get the time, but it does move a little, it's moving faster, yeah, without a doubt. And I would also say, if you're in a position where you can get pre-dub days, because I know some of the TV you might not, you might pre-dubbing as you as you're finally, but I think to me, if I get, be more prepared, I can do the final mix better. And also if I can get more pre-dub days, uh, it's kind of just on me doing it. Once you get to the final stage, you have somebody more time. Now it's on a director or someone else. It's a much easier battle to have, well, the director needs one more day, versus you saying, hey, I need one more day. So if you can sit yourself in a position where you get another pre-dub day or two, you'd be better prepared. And also, again, you need more time. There will be the director's dime. It's going to have more weight than any of us. So we have our next question. And also, if you had a question, please raise your hand again so Linda can find you. Okay, we have one in the front, and I thought there was one in the back. Right here, too. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Um, this, I guess this is more for Michael. What is the, the way you approach the mix uh, of animation movie versus a live action movie in terms of, let's say, uh, SPL levels for dialogue and all that? How do you structure it? Where do you start? What's your goal? Is it very different from a live action movie in terms of dynamic range and all that? Technically, no, I, I don't. I approach a movie, whether it's animated or live action, as storytelling. And so, depending on the film, like I'm doing animated films, and most of those uh, are for children. So we try to be very careful about volume and getting too loud and being abrasive. 
Um, the last thing, most of the, and, and definitely Pixar directors and, and, and all, pretty much all animated directors, they don't want to push the audience away from their movie. And sometimes abrasive sound can do that and take the people out. So, yeah, I will say, and then if there's another film, a live action film I'm working on, like Social Network, we're pushing the envelope at times. Like, really, I, no, he wants it to hit hard in, in these scenes. And, uh, uh, but in animation, yeah, we're looking at dynamics pretty much, really. Let's get really quiet. I mean, Phil's really, Phil Lord is very sensitive to, and it freaks him out, you know, if things get too loud or too sharp. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of go with what, how the director wants it to be, but as an experienced mixer or sound designer, or, or you, you have to give them guidance. They don't do this all the time. They come in, they walk onto a dub stage, and if you're already playing everything at 11, they're just like, okay, well, if that's where we start, then I got to get up to 14 at this point in the movie or 15, but if you, you create dynamics for them and they start to, they, they understand dynamics. They, they understand it in animation, they understand it in, you know what I mean, in just the way the visuals work. So for me, approaching it, yeah, I'm always conscious of uh, animated films if I know it's a younger audience. And just because, you know, you don't want them pull, hope, you know, first thing they do, kids do, cover their ears if, if it's too loud and, and you really don't want them to do that. So. Uh, I'm fortunate to work with uh, uh, directors who are very sensitive to that. So we try, we tend not to, I mean, it makes very loud. I mean, Coco, I know it played out there low, but it didn't seem to hurt it, you know? I mean, we, it's a very comfortable film, and most of them are very comfortable. You can just sit and play it at Dolby 7, and, and you can watch the movie and get into it and not be blasted away. Now, if you're doing something, you know, a live-action film that's a Marvel movie, and it's got to have... I mean, it's got to kind of rock in spots, you know. You really got to push push it. But, you know, again, it's being quiet and then growing. But I approach the films kind of all the same. It's just animation or not. It's This is storytelling. This is someone telling their story. And we want the audience to be involved. And we want to support all the emotions and all the action. As well as, as much as the visuals are doing it, the sound needs to support it or help carry it, push it through. Whether that's music, whether it's transitional sounds with sound design. It, you, you just have to continue the story. And, and, and speaking of volume, yeah, I try to be very aware. You can get really out of control fast. And then sometimes when you're working those out, you don't even realize it. You know, it's just, and then you realize it's abrasive the next day. And you're like, well, let's just take it down. Like, you know, let's bring it back so we can make better dynamics. So, yeah, it's it's an ongoing struggle, even for me, to to be aware of how loud movies have gotten. I think the, the kids hearing is more sensitive than ours as adults too. So we do screen these movies and I've done temp mixes for them. You can see how the kids react to it and very different from the adult. And I think because, you know, loud is not funny to anyone really. It's it's the, the, the joke itself. And I think uh, sometimes we underscore maybe that in the animated movies versus, you know, blowing your head off with it. We don't need to impress as much. And um, I think the animated movies, you'll see me mixing them. When I look at them, they speak to me in a different way than the, the actual movie. It doesn't demand that same level for the for those movies to to you know, to work. It's not a real explosion. It's a goof explosion where a lot of things happen. Uh, so I think we're really aware of that. At least the animated movies I've been on that you know the kids listen to things differently, and I think we definitely err on the side of dialogue being cl clearer more than animated movies. So we don't throw away any lines. I think in animated movies, at least the ones I've been on, it's just it's precious every single line so we everything is secondary very much and some movies that have been in live action movies uh, we kind of get it we don't need a line just mow it over the jet flying by or whatever isn't as important 
it's more important we rip someone's head off with the sound. So. so we only have a couple of minutes left. Let's try to get to one more question, and we'll have to keep the answer short. Go ahead. Okay. Oh, okay, two, two more questions. <laughs> so I imagine most sound editors and designers start off with live action and then maybe transition to animated films. Um, is there anything specific about your guys' workflow that has maybe that you've noticed has changed since working on more animated films when you're working on live action now? Is there anything about that animation workflow that's sort of boiled over into your live action work now? You know, um, Michael was saying earlier that the lines are actually blurring quite a bit from animation to live action. Like uh, any of the Transformers films I've worked on are virtually animated films or Godzilla, or, you know. Um, so, and I think the main workflow thing is, you know, you start with the more finished stuff and uh, don't spend a ton of time on the um, animatics. Um, you know, start with stuff that's lit um, and work your way backwards. I started the other way. I started animation and went live action. And I found live action to be uh, an easier workflow. And last question. Hi. Um, so my question, I don't know how much y'all are going to be able to answer this, but uh, when it comes to animation, the kind of fluid nature of it, how do you deal with budgeting uh, when you're looking at a, a film and the post sound for it? Um, larger numbers are better. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think like, I think most things. Like, I mean, you have to try to pace yourself, understand it, and it gives you you have an experience coming into it. I think uh, me supervising moving and give you like a million dollars, don't give it just to someone who doesn't have proven you can have a schedule early on. And there's a little bit of different demands on on a movie like an animated movie because if I start a live action movie, everybody ramps up and goes go go go, and we're all in the same group. An animated movie, okay. I can't really ramp up with a huge crew because I've just given a little bit of work for two weeks or a month, then we're off. Next time I come back, it might be me and two other guys who never seen the movie before. So that's a little bit of ramp up time that you do lose uh, to get these people into the same groove as you are. The palette of sound that you work for, work with the movie, and why we're doing it. But, but I think it comes down to your experience. I, I, don't, I think I think it's hard to do an animated movie, not supervised any movie before, because it just it's, it's a different beast. I want to thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>